please keep your Bibles open at uh, Genesis chapter 1. There's so much in this passage. So there's the challenge when you're preparing a sermon with a passage like this is how much to leave on the cutting room floor and uh, there's a lot that's been left on the cutting room floor. So we're not going to be able to cover everything but uh, we're going to particularly, um, as Peter mentioned, look at uh, three particular points and I'll mention those in a moment. But uh, before we do that, uh, let me pray. Our loving God, one who is living and true, We praise you for your word is life and truth. And so as you speak to us in your word, by your spirit, we pray that you would speak life and truth to us, that we might place our trust in the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And we pray these things in his glorious name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever uh, been asked the question, who made God? Um, I've done lots of kids' ministry, and it was a question that kids often asked as they tried to get their heads around the notion of God. Who made God? It's also a question that some adults asks, ask. Uh, Some of them because they really want to believe in God, but struggle to. But others, like Richard Dawkins, use the question to argue against God's existence. John Lennox, who's the Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and who's had a number of high-profile debates about the existence of God with Richard Dawkins, was debating Dawkins once about God's existence when Dawkins asked him the question, who created God? Now, John Lennox says that there's something intellectually wrong with the question. Philosophers call it the complex question because it shuts down and excludes the only possible reasonable answer. You see, the question already assumes an answer. It assumes that God is a created being. But what if God is not a created being? So John Lennox decided to answer Richard Dawkins in this way. He said to him, you think this is a serious question. So Richard, let me apply it to you. You believe the universe created you. So let me try your question on you. Who created your universe? John Lennox said he's still waiting for the answer. Well, friends, as we come to Genesis one and uh, chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3, the question that we're going to answer this evening is who created the world? Because it tells us what the world is like and why it was created. So they're the three things we're going to look at. Who and then what and why. It's these questions. Who created it? What kind of world did God create and why did he create it that concern the writer of Genesis? And not particularly how the world was made, at least not from a scientific perspective. The aim of this passage here in Genesis 1 is to teach us about the God 
who created the world, the kind of world that God created, and God's goal for creation. And and there's good reason for that, and that is that uh, God's word is a text for living right here and now. And it addresses the big life issues. Issues such as, who am I? What is life ultimately all about? Where do I belong? Who am I connected to? And how am I meant to live? So we'll begin by answering the first of our questions. Who created the world? Look with me at the first line in Genesis chapter 1, the first statement that's made in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's the headline. The rest of the passage is the story. God lies behind all reality as we know it. God creates the heavens and the earth. God makes everything happen that occurs in Genesis 1. God speaks everything into existence. God sees his work. God separates light from darkness, water from water, water from land. God names, God blesses, God gives, God rests. Did you notice as you read Genesis 1? God, God, God. God is at the beginning of everything. God is at the centre of everything. God is the source of everything. Friends, after we read the Bible, the first question that uh, we tend to want to ask of the Scriptures is this. How does what I've just heard in the Bible apply to me? Or what does God want me to do with this particular text? How am I to obey it? Now, they are terrific questions, and they are questions that we must ask after reading the Bible. But not before we ask a primary question. First question we need to be asking after we've read the Bible is, what is God's word telling me about God and how God relates to his world? Because God's word is not first and foremostly about you and me, about our needs and our desires and our problems and our decisions. We don't read the Bible to find out how God fits into my story. We read the Bible to find out how we fit into God's big story. God's word is first and foremost about God. Genesis 1 sets the agenda very clearly here so that we can know God, so that we can love God, so that we can trust God and so that we can submit to God. So what does the creation story here in Genesis 1 tell us about God? Well, the first thing, the first specific thing it says that God does is that God speaks. 
Look at verse 3. This is the first specific thing it says after it says God creates the heaven and the earth. And God said. More specifically, God commands. He says, let there be light. And when God speaks, God commands, stuff happens. Light appears, waters gather, land masses form, plants and trees spring up from the ground. This tells us that God is powerful. But it's saying more. The fact that God speaks creation into existence isn't just telling us that God's powerful to create. The fact that he speaks his creation into existence and doesn't just point a finger or wave a magic wand says that God is in relationship to his creation. The main purpose of communication is communion. The the main purpose of talk, of speech, is relationship. And God rules over his creation by talking to it. And notice in Genesis 1, whenever God says, let there be, creation responds obediently to its creator. See what's going on? God speaks, creation responds. This is the language of relationship. Now, friends, it's no coincidence that John's gospel begins in this way. Let me read to you from John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. God who was there in the beginning, as Genesis 1, 1 records it, was not alone in the beginning, because the Word of God, Jesus was with God in the beginning. Again, this is relationship language. What is hinted at in Genesis 1 is made clear in John 1. The one who speaks here in Genesis 1 is a community of persons. This God is Trinity. So that the God who created you is the God who makes himself known to you, the God who cares about you, and the God who commits himself to relationship with you. Now, when God speaks, not only does he command creation into being, Genesis 1 tells us that when God speaks, he also names his creation. God calls the light day, the dry ground land, the gathered waters seas. In the ancient world, naming objects is what a ruler does. If you're Alexander the Great, you get to call a city Alexandria. God's naming of creation signifies he's not just its maker, but God rules over creation and that he's in charge of it. 
that he's related to his creation as its king. Well, what else does Genesis 1 tell us about God? It tells us that God is generous. Uh, Creation is a gift. God didn't have to create the universe. And we see God's generosity here in the abundance of creation. Uh, Notice there's not just one type of plant or tree, but there's a variety. And it's the same with birds and fish and reptiles. In verse 20, we're told that the water is to teem, to literally be overflowing with marine creatures. And then God tells birds and fish and humans to multiply and to fill the earth in verses 22 and 28. And then we're told that God gives to humans every seed-bearing plant and every fruit tree with seed in it to eat in verse 29. And then in verse 30 we're told that he gives to mammals and reptiles and birds every green plant to eat. See what it's saying to us? It's saying this God who creates this world is generous. He creates abundance. He creates variety. And he creates in a manner so that creation itself might continue to multiply and to fill the earth. And then he generally, generously gives it away. Not just some of it, but notice the words. Every seed-bearing plant, every fruit tree, Every green plant is given to creatures to enjoy and to sustain them. So what does Genesis 1 tell us about the God who creates the world? Yes, it tells us that he is powerful and that he's relational. That he's in charge, that he is the king of his creation who names it. And that he is the God who gives generously. So the next question is, well, if this is who God is, what kind of world did God make? Look with me at verse 2 of Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 2 is, in a sense, an outline of what follows in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells us that God brings form and structure to a formless world. And once there's form and structure, God then fills the empty world. Now, you might be asking, well, what are the waters in verse 2? And who or what is the Spirit of God in verse 2? Well, the waters represent chaos and non-existence in ancient thought. Genesis 1 shows how God brings life and order out of non-existence. And what about the Spirit of God? Can we say that this is the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think Moses, the writer of Genesis, was thinking of the Holy Spirit as we know him. Uh, The Hebrew word for spirit is also used 
to uh, talk about breath or wind. So maybe he thought of the Spirit of God as an extension of God's power. It makes sense then for God to create the world by speaking, because speaking requires breath. But just as God's speech in Genesis 1 offers us a hint into God's personal and relational being that is fully revealed in Jesus, the link between God's speech and the Spirit of God that's hinted at here in Genesis 1 is also fully revealed for us in the New Testament. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost with the force of a violent wind and fills the house so that the apostles are then empowered to speak God's word. And just as God's word brings creation into existence in Genesis 1, what we see then is in Acts 2 is that through, through the speaking of God's word at Pentecost, men and women receive new life. Genesis 1, God speaks, creation comes into existence. Genesis 2, through the power of the Spirit, the gospel is preached and new creation happens, new life happens. So by reading the Genesis passage in the light of the New Testament, we can say that the spirit of verse 2 is the Holy Spirit. Well, getting back to Genesis 1, what we see here in this account is that God's creation is wonderfully ordered. On the first three days, God creates the space. He creates the structure, which he then fills in afterwards. On day one, God creates light and separates it from darkness. Day two, he separates the waters in the atmosphere from the waters below. Day three, God separates the waters below to create land. And then what we see in the next three days is that God fills those spaces that he's just created on days one to three. So day four, God fills the space above the earth with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, he fills the skies with birds and the seas below with marine life. And then on day six, he fills the land with mammals and reptiles, insects and humans. So there are two sets of three days here. During the first three, God creates the spaces, which he then fills over days four to six. And notice, day one corresponds with day four. Day two with day, day five. Day three with day six. In this beautifully ordered symmetry that indicates something of the order that is contained in God's creation. So God's creation is wonderfully ordered. But the other thing that we're told about God's world that he makes is that it's good. In fact, we're told over and over again, six times, God saw what he made and he declared that it was good. And by day six, when he's finished, he looks at it 
And he says, it's very good. So what does it mean for God's creation to be good? Does it mean it's, does it just mean that it's well crafted? That it's beautiful? That it does what God intended it to do? Well, yes, to all of that. But there's more. Annie Dillard, who was an American flower child from the 1960s, decided to move from the city to live a quiet life beside a creek. But after moving to live beside the creek, she was absolutely surprised by what she saw. Let me read to you what she has to say about this. She said, Evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not buoying me up, but it's dragging me down. Look, Cock Robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, or either of us about the robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I might have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalised. She says, either this world, my mother is a monster or I'm a freak. Consider this, the world is a monster. There is not a people in the world who behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say, there's no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely, we are moral creatures in an amoral world. She says the universe that suckled us is a monster that does not care if we live or die. It doesn't care if it itself grinds to a halt. It's a beast running on chance and death, careening from nowhere to nowhere, which somehow produced wonderful us. It's a fix, it is fixed and blind, a robot programmed to kill. Annie Dillard's romantic view of nature was shattered when she actually experienced how nature works up close. She observed that nature is brutal. It it doesn't care about who dies. And she observes how the strong consistently overpower the weak. Now, if that's how nature operates, why not live like that? Friends, I think that's the challenge for the atheist. If nature is all there is, how can we logically object to the strong overpowering the weak? Well, we do object, because when God's word says that creation is good, 
it also means that there is a moral fabric to the universe. That's why death troubles us. It's why the life of a person with a disability is just as valuable as anyone else's. It's why God created men and women equal. It's why the strong shouldn't overpower the weak. Without a creator God, a good God, making a good world, a God who is goodness himself, who defines for us what is right and true and fair and just, there is no logical basis for that kind of morality. As Annie Dillard says, nature can't tell us that. Yes, nature can reveal something of the beauty and the complexity and the diversity of this wonderful world. But it can't reveal to us what it means to live a good life. It can't tell you how to act morally or live ethically. We need a standard beyond nature. We need the Word of God to tell us what is right and true and good. So what have we seen so far from Genesis 1? We've seen God creates the world and the fact that he speaks it into being means that he's personal and that he made a good world, good in every sense, including morally good. The final question is, what is the goal of God's good creation. Why? The why question. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 with me. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Notice the seventh day is different from all the rest. God rests on the seventh day. He blesses it. He declares it. He declares that it's holy. And notice, there's no statement, there was evening and there was morning, the seventh day. So what makes this day so special? Well, God's rest indicates completion. I don't just mean that in the sense that God's finished the job of creation, but that he, it's complete in the sense that he has created a world now that is fit for purpose, that is a perfect fit for his creatures, as well as being a place where he could live alongside us. See, this is the climax of creation. The God who made us is God with us. That is what we've been made for. We've been created to live with God and for God. To put it another way, the goal of creation is to worship God. Friends, God made you, God made this world to worship him. The fact that there's no, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day, indicates Worship isn't just what you do on the seventh day. Worship is what God made you for. Worship is what you do 
every day in all of life. So how do we worship God every day in all of life? Well, let me say to you, you need to worship regularly to worship always. You need to worship regularly so that you will worship always. Let me explain what I mean. Um, as, a, as a pastor, I would, um, when people miss church for a while, I'd, I'd um, generally follow them up and if I had the opportunity, I'd go and uh, catch up with them for coffee or, um, and, or um, pop over to their places for a chat and just to see how they were. Now, some of the folk I remember um, who I caught up with uh, were married people with kids. And uh, generally it was the, the father, the husband, um, and uh, catch up with them and say, look, it's been a while since we've seen you at church. How are you going? Um, stuff okay? Uh, just wanted to see how you are. And we get around to the question of, you know, what's been going on for you that's made it hard to get to church? And often the, the, the statement would be, you know, I've been working so hard that I'd get to Sunday and it would be the only day in the week where I could spend time with the kids, where I could spend time with the family. I remember talking to one person who said to me, you know, I just feel as though as if church competes with my family for my time. I said to this fellow, look, that's not a helpful way to see your life. It's, life isn't about juggling competing priorities. Even though it feels like that, that's not what it's really about. It's really about living out, uh, living with Christ at the centre of your life. I said, look, you think, you think you're loving your family best by skipping church to spend time with them. I said, I understand that. But actually, you love your family best when you love, when you treasure God most. And actually... What you do on a Sunday when you, reg- when you worship together with your church family helps you to love God most so that you might love your family best because it reminds us to keep God at the centre. That's why we're here tonight, friends. That's why we gather together for Sunday worship. You need to worship regularly in order to worship always. What we do here on a Sunday reorients us to worship God from Monday to Saturday. Whether we're changing nappies or writing reports for work, swinging a hammer or paying the bills. So how does what we do here on a Sunday, communal worship, reorient us to worship God Monday to Saturday? To answer that question, let's remind ourselves of the reason God gave Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy. He gives two reasons. The first one is in Exodus 20, verse 11. Let me read it to you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The creation story is a wonderful reminder that creation is God's gift to us. 
and that the world won't stop spinning if you and I stop working. Just by regularly stopping to worship, we're acknowledging that our lives and all that we have is God's gift to us. And that's why, isn't it appropriate to stop from our work, to lay down tools, so to speak, to pay attention to God for the sake of praising him and thanking him for the many gifts that he gives us. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? That's a good reason to gather together for worship. The second reason for Sabbath is God's rescue story. Let me read here from Deuteronomy 5.15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God's rescue story for you and me isn't deliverance from Egypt. It's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel story that we rehearse every Sunday when we're here together, gathered together as God's people, is the story of God's great love for us. A love that becomes weak even though he's the all-powerful God who speaks creation into existence. A love that serves, even though he is our king because he created us. And a love that sacrifices everything, even though he is the creator of all things. Why does he do that? so that we can live with him, so that we can live with God and we can live for God forever in the new creation that's to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise and thank you that you are the one who has created all things created them by your powerful word for you are God who speaks because you are as Father, Son and Spirit a personal and relational God as Trinity and you have created us for relationship with yourself so that we might know and love you. We praise you for creating such a good world that is so wonderfully structured which is so bountiful, which expresses so much of your generosity and grace. And above all else, we praise you for creating us so that you can live alongside us, so that we might know you and worship you. Lord, as we've gathered together today to be reminded that you are our God the one who has created us and redeemed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to go out into this week worshipping you in the everydayness of our lives. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.